Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We finally move to a new chapter. Matthew 6, and we're going to start studying verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret what is done in, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Today we begin a new chapter, new topic. Uh, you see, the, the passage we just finished studying before this, uh, verses 21 to 48, focused on the teaching of the law, uh, on what people believe. Now we come to chapter 6, and here in verses 1 to 18, Jesus focuses on the practice of the law, what people do. And in the passage in chapter 5, Jesus emphasized inner moral righteousness, giving six representative illustrations dealing with murder, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, and love. Now he emphasizes outward formal righteousness, giving three representative illustrations again of religious activity. They are giving in verses 2 to 4, praying in verses 5 to 15, and fasting verses 16 to 18. Giving illustrates our religion as it acts towards others. Praying illustrates our religion as it acts towards God. And fasting illustrates our religion as it acts in relationship to ourselves. But verse 1 introduces the passage with an overarching principle which applies to all three of the illustrations. It's the issue of false righteousness, of living a life of hypocrisy. In his excellent commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, D.A. Carson uh, writes these words, quote, We human beings are a strange lot. We hear high moral implications and glimpse just a little of the genuine beauty of perfect holiness and then prostitute the vision by dreaming about the way others would hold us in high esteem if we were like that. The demand for genuine perfection loses itself in the lesser goal of external piety. The goal of pleasing the Father is traded for its pygmy cousin, the goal of pleasing man. It almost seems as if the greater the demand for holiness, the greater the opportunity for hypocrisy. End quote. You know, every one of us is a hypocrite to one degree or another. Uh, the Russian author Ivan Turgenev uh, wrote, quote, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible, end quote. Um, and that's what we have seen as we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this sermon not only exposes the believer's heart, but defines, of it, defines it. None of us completely meet the standard of the Sermon on the Mount. But at the same time, if we are true believers, something of the character of the kingdom, something of each of the Beatitudes will be authentically present in our lives. Spiritual poverty, humility, 
spiritual thirst and hunger, mercy, peacekeeping. And along with that, there will be the presence of the surpassing righteousness of Christ. We may fail at times, but we will practice righteousness. Uh, anger and adulterous thoughts and insincere talk and retaliation will progressively vanish from our lives. Uh, agape love will become characteristic of us. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit and with His Word, including the explicit teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, we will practice righteousness. However, that's where the danger lies. Uh, because once you begin to live out the righteousness of God, once you are flying spiritually, as it were, once you're living a life full of good deeds, it's very easy to begin doing what Jesus warns about here in verse 1 of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The story is told of an Eastern mystic and ascetic holy man who used to sit on a prominent place on the street of a, of a busy street in his city. And every day he would sit there covered with dust and ashes as a sign of his humility. And one day a passing tourist asked his permission to take his photograph to which the holy man replied, just a moment, please, let me rearrange my ashes. <laughs> he wanted to give the greatest appearance of destitution and humility. Well, there's a lot of rearranging of ashes going on in religion as people fix up their piosity so that it will look better to those who know them. And I suppose that in all of our lives, there's a little bit of that kind of rearranging of ashes going on. Uh, we want to make a good impression. That's a familiar religious game. Uh, we want to appear holy and pious, especially if there are some truly holy and pious godly people around us. So we play a game, and the game is called hypocrite. And we are the phonies. Obviously, if you read the Bible, you know that the Lord seeks real, genuine, authentic devotion of the heart. He's not interested in rearranging your ashes. He's not interested in how you look on the outside and whether or not you look humble and holy and pious to others. The Pharisees of Jesus' time were perhaps the all-time specialists at rearranging their ashes. They made sure they put on a show, and that's the issue to which Jesus speaks in verses 1 to 18. And it opens up a wider concept for us because we have to understand what God thinks of this in general. Generally speaking, hypocrisy is dealt with in Scripture from the start to the finish. Uh, Cain was the first hypocrite, feigning worship by offering a kind of sacrifice that God did not want. Uh, when his hypocrisy is unmasked, what did he do? He killed his brother out of resentment. Absalom hypocrisy, hypocr hypocritically, I'm, excuse me there. He hypocritically vowed allegiance to his father uh, while plotting the overthrow of his regime. Uh, the supreme hypocrite, of course, was who? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord with a kiss. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira hypocritically claimed to have given the church all the proceeds from the sale of some property and lost their lives for lying to the Holy Spirit. There are hypocrites in every form of man-made religion and even in Christianity. 
uh, which is the only true religion because it's God made. There were hypocrites in the early church, hypocrites in the medieval church. There were hypocrites in the Reformation church. There are still hypocrites in the leadership of the church today. They're always around. It's just part of the sinfulness of man to play the game of religion. And there will be hypocrites until the end of the age. Uh, Paul told Timothy that the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. Hypocrisy is endemic to fallen man. It is an integral part of his fleshly nature. Persecution of the church, though, helps diminish the number of hypocrites. Uh, but even that can't completely eliminate them. Hypocrisy is never dealt with lightly in Scripture. God dealt with it in Israel through the prophet Amos. Now listen to what Amos wrote in Amos 5, verses 21 to 24. This is God speaking. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, God is saying, look, I myself introduced these things to you. I invented all of them. I commanded all of them. But I despise them. Why? Because you've twisted and perverted and falsified their purpose. You have maintained the external practice but your internal heart attitude is vacant and it's empty. That's hypocrisy. An outward show without an inward reality. It's religiosity. It's phoniness. But such hypocrisy was not only true of the northern kingdom, to which Amos wrote, it was also true of the southern kingdom, to which Isaiah wrote. Look over to Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. This sounds almost like an identical passage. Just start reading in verse 11 of Isaiah 1. It says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to prepare before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New, so new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. 
plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Again, God says, everything that I have introduced, everything that I commanded, everything that I instituted in your worship, all of the feasts and the new moons and the sacrifices and the oblations and incense, all of it, I despise it all. Why? Because it's phony. And until your hearts are made as white and pure as snow and wool, I have nothing to do with you. Don't even come into my courts. God hates hypocrisy. Jesus confronted much sin in his time, but never did he rebuke any sinner like he rebuked the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. He reserved the most blistering language for those spiritual phonies who had masked their vile, evil hearts with a facade of piosity. And in Mark 7, 6 and 7, he quoted Isaiah 29, 13 as he rebuked them to their face. And here's what he said. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from, away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He used many word pictures to describe hypocrisy and hypocrites. In Luke 12, 1, he compared hypocrisy to leaven, which spreads throughout bread, just as hypocrisy can spread like an infection. In Matthew 23, 27, he compared hypocrites to whitewashed tombs in which there were rotting, decaying, stinking bodies, but on the outside, they're beautiful. In Luke 11:44, he compared them to concealed tombs. That is, an, with, covered with overgrown, uh, it's an overgrown grave so covered with grass that you have no longer know it's a grave and you're defiled by stepping on it. Uh, in Matthew 13, 25, he compared them to tares among the wheat that deceive the farmer until it's too late and they're fully mature. In Matthew 7:15, he compared them to wolves in sheep's clothing, pretending to be harmless sheep, when in reality they're dangerous, ravenous wolves. One of the interesting types of hypocrisy that was practiced in Israel during New Testament times was the custom of hiring professional mourners to be present at your relative's funeral. Uh, often when a Jew was mourning the death of a family member, he or she would tear their garments as a sign of their great sorrow. As I've told you before, clothing was a very precious possession in those days. So to ruin your clothing by tearing it was seen as an indication of great sorrow. Well, historians tell us that the Jews began a practice of hiring professional mourners uh, to weep and wail at a funeral in order to show how sorrowful the family was at the death of their family member. In Matthew 9, there's the story of a synagogue official who, whose daughter died. And when Jesus went to the house, verse 23, he says, he saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. Those flute players were not playing cheerful tunes. They were playing dissonant 
dirges and the crowd was noisy because they were wailing over the dead child. Uh, and historians tell us that these professional mourners wore garments that were very carefully sewn so that they would tear apart easily at the seams. And then they could be easily sewn back together again for the next funeral that they were hired to mourn at. Uh, so these professional mourners were hypocrites. And people who hired them were too because they were putting on a display of mourning that wasn't real for the benefit of the family members who obviously weren't mourning enough to tear their own clothes. You see the hypocrisy, the, the facade of caring when you don't care. That's what hypocrisy is. Of being righteous on the outside when you're unrighteous on the inside. And all you're doing is rearranging your ashes for the effect it has on others. And that's precisely what Jesus is warning against in Matthew 6. So let's, yes. So you have I'm getting there. Oh, okay. I I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> Don't jump ahead of me there, Janetta. Let's look at verse 1 again. Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That word beware means to pay attention to, to be on guard, to hold on to something strongly. And the words to be noticed are from a word which is related to the Greek word for a theater, a place where people put on a show, where they act in a performance in order to be noticed. When you put it together, the sentence can be read as be on guard against doing your righteousness before men to put on a show, to get their attention. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Clearly, it is impossible for all good works to be done in absolute secrecy. True righteousness cannot be kept entirely secret, nor should it be. Uh, in fact, observing such behavior in people is one way to know those who are truly believers. Uh, 1 John 2.29 tells us, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. When you observe the practice of righteousness in their lives, you recognize that the Holy Spirit has truly transformed those, that individual. And back in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The question is not, listen carefully, the question is not whether or not our good works should be seen by others, but whether they are done for that end. When they are done in such a way that the attention and glory are focused on our Father who is in heaven rather than ourselves, God is pleased. But if they're done to be noticed by others, they are self-righteous and hypocritical and are thus rejected by God. The difference is in purpose and motivation. When what we do is done for the right spirit and for the right purpose, it will almost inevitably be done in the right way. You see, the contrast between what Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works, and what he said in verse 1 here, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, they're often thought to be in conflict with one another. 
But those who think that fail to recognize that they relate to different sins. The discrepancy is only imaginary. In chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus was dealing with the sin of cowardice, of failing to represent the light of Jesus Christ to a dark world who needs to hear about him. In chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is dealing with the sin of hypocrisy, of trying to gain glory for oneself by behaving as though you're doing it for God's glory. Bible scholar A.B. Bruce summed up how we are to respond with a very helpful explanation. He wrote, we are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. So the Bible does not talk about doing righteous acts. God never designed us. Uh, the Bible does talk about doing righteous acts. I misstated that. Uh, God, but God never designed us to be monks. Uh, hiding away in a monastic lifestyle and doing all your righteousness while you're locked away in seclusion is not biblical. In fact, the Bible does teach that we are to practice our righteousness before others. Psalm 106.3 says, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. So you're going to practice righteousness at all times. And when you do that, if you do that right, others are going to see it. And we are to practice righteousness and we are to practice it where it can be seen so that others know that we belong to God. We're to let our righteousness be seen. And you say, well, wait a minute. It says right here that you are not to practice your righteousness before men. But notice again the three words to be noticed by them. Those words to be noticed by them. In Greek, it has the construction of purpose or design for the purpose of or in order that you will be noticed by them. In other words, you practice your righteousness, but not for the purpose of being seen by others so that you look good. When your righteousness is performed to impress rather than to serve and to magnify yourself rather than God, you receive no reward. That's what the end of the verse says. Jesus says, don't practice your righteousness in order to gain the acclaim of others. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. God does not reward men-pleasers because they rob him of his glory. Now, why should there be any reward? After all, you've already received your reward, the acclaim of men. There are some people who get all kinds of hung up on this idea of receiving rewards in heaven. They seem to think that seeking after reward is a crass motive. But it doesn't need to be. God is the one who established this. And since he's an absolutely holy God, he must have a holy reason for doing it. Uh, apparently in God's mind, there are some things that deserve a reward. And since that's the way he set it up, I'm fine with that. Uh, the scriptures speak of various crowns that we'll receive for various things. And if I read Revelation 4.10 properly, you and I are going to take any crowns we ever receive and cast them at his feet in adoration or praise. Now, as I've taught before, that doesn't mean that they are actual crowns. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. It may well be a metaphor for various types of honor and privileges for services that we will receive. But the point is that we should seek to obtain a reward if for no other reason than that we might show him our love by giving him all that we have. But there are rewards. 
Now, as we said, verse 1 is the overarching principle for what Jesus is going to teach in the first 18 verses of this chapter. And after he's given this basic principle, he then turns to give them these three representative illustrations or examples of their religious activity that reveal whether or not they're hypocrites. And the first one is the issue of giving. Jesus targets the practice of false giving, a common practice among the scribes and Pharisees. And then after critiquing them, he then explains what true giving from the heart looks like. Now, it's easy to study this and think, oh, I'm not like these guys. But I will tell you that the mindset behind their thinking is still quite evident in many, if not most, American evangelical churches today. So let's see what Jesus had to say about the practice and reward of false giving. Let's look at verse 2. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, as we begin to consider this verse, we now turn to Janetta's issue, this uh, word hypocrite. It's the first time this word has appeared in this book, and it does come from this Greek word, hypocrites, uh, from which we obviously get our English word, hypocrite. Uh, originally, the word referred to an actor who in the Greek theater would hold a mask up in front of his face and then would take on the role of the character represented by the mask. The actor was pretending to be someone who he was not. Uh, over time, the word came to be used of anyone who behaves publicly in a way which was not representative of he, who he or she truly was. He or she pretends to be someone or something they're not. And the word has maintained that meaning throughout the past 2,000 years. One of Satan's most common and effective ways of undermining the power of the church is through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, therefore, is a great peril to the church, and it comes in two forms. The first is that of unbelievers masquerading as believers. And the second is that of true believers who are sinful but pretend to be spiritual. Uh, the warning that Jesus gives here applies to both groups. Now, Jesus turns his attention to the first illustration or example where hypocrisy is evident, and that is in giving. Now, whenever a pastor gets on the topic of giving, he really opens up a can of worms. Uh, I don't know if there's ever been a time in the history of the church when there's been a greater bombardment for our money from so-called Christian causes than there is today. With all of the direct mail and the radio and television and the internet, it's hard for us to avoid being drowned in a sea of needs from many well-meaning Christian organizations. Uh, I know this has been an issue for Verse by Verse, uh, the radio ministry outreach of Pastor Kreloff. I'm the executive director of that ministry, and Steve has a cardinal rule that he doesn't want our listener letters and communications to be continually asking for money. Uh, we we have we mentioned our needs in the past, and 
and I know that we will in the future, but we try to avoid being pushy about it. Uh, and sometimes that's hard, particularly if you've had a major donor stop donating. Uh, there's a part of you that, that wants to beg the rest of the listening, listening audience uh, for money to help make up the loss that you're facing. Uh, but we have tried to simply trust the Lord to provide. It hasn't always been easy, but so far he has met our needs. And I understand that knowing who to give to, when to give, and how to give is often very difficult. Uh, but we do know that in the Bible there's two kinds of giving. Two ways that we are to give in terms of Christian giving. One is systematic, structured, regular giving to the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 tells us that on the first day of the week, each one of us is to put aside and save as he may prosper for the benefit of the church. So we are to give as God has prospered us. Believers are to regularly give to their church for the ministry that takes place there. I'm not going to be a legalist and say that you must give every week, but I think the principle is that ever, that is is the principle is not that every now and then you throw a few bucks in the offering box. And it's not the principle of doing it annually in the month of December, just before the end of the year, so you can get the tax deduction for it. Uh, it is to be an ongoing process of regular giving, whether weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, however you get paid. I mean, I miss the days of an offering plate being passed along, but I understand the concerns these days of the pandemic. And the Lord has been gracious through the people at Lakeside who have continued to give abundantly to this ministry, whether in the offering boxes or online. Uh, so uh, we and we now have a new area of ministry to give to our church, and that's the building fund for the renovations to our building. That, too, is to be a part of our giving. But like the people of Israel who were asked to support the building of the tabernacle, it's to be over and above the giving that is done for that. Uh, they already gave their tithes, but this was a special offering. And so we need to support that also, particularly since it was so overwhelmingly passed by our congregation as something they want to do. Uh, there may be other church-related ministries which you may choose to support uh, other than the local church. Ministries such as Verse by Verse or some other sound evangelical ministry or mission. Again, you are to plan and prepare and give to that on a regular basis. But your local church ministry is to be the priority because we're told in Scripture that to give to support those faith, we are to give to support those elders who are rule well and feed us the word because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 16 says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save. That is systematic, structured giving as you may prosper. But there's a second kind of giving. That's giving to the poor and needy. That's unstructured, unspecified, and spontaneous. And it is over and above the giving to the church and church-related ministries. Uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have that kind of giving where, where a needy person crosses your path and you are to reach out your heart to that individual. 
Now, beyond those two things, the Bible says nothing else about giving. It doesn't mention supporting community organizations such as the Red Cross or the United Way or groups like that. If you wish to support those other kinds of organizations, that's certainly not prohibited by Scripture. But understand that it also is not commanded by Scripture. Uh, so we have to talk about the issue of giving then. Now, a lot of times when someone hears that, any of the pastors in the church are talking about giving, they immediately think, oh, here it comes again. They're trying to lay a guilt trip on you. No, I'm not. Um, as you know, I'm only teaching on this subject because that's what's next in our study of Matthew. Uh, and I'm not jumping out of sequence in order to give you a message on giving. Uh, I think that, first of all, giving has been an unpopular subject because it's been abused. And secondly, because people have the wrong understanding of what it's all about. You see, first of all, you have to start with this understanding. God doesn't need your money. He gets along fine without it. In fact, do you realize that God got along throughout all of eternity without your money before he ever made you? God ran the whole universe before there were ever any people in it. It didn't cost him a penny. Uh, God can do anything he wants. He doesn't need a penny from you. So don't think you're doing him a favor. That isn't the point. The point in giving is not that God is up there saying, oh boy, if only Joe would give more, we could advance the kingdom according to the plan for this week. God is not doing that. God is not at the mercy of any of us. So the first thing you need to know is that God doesn't need your money. What he is after is your heart. And if he has that, you will be obedient to the word and you will give abundantly. Now, verse two begins by saying, so when you give to the poor. The word here is a Greek word which refers to charitable giving. And the Greek verb, which is the root of this word, means to be greatly concerned about someone in need. To have compassion or mercy or pity on, on them. Interestingly, as a side note, in the Hebrew language, not the Greek, the Jews used the same word, tzedakah, uh, both for righteousness and almsgiving. Uh, they equated giving to the poor with deeds of righteousness. Uh, the Greeks used two different words. But in Old Testament Hebrew, the same word means both righteousness or charitable giving. And Jesus' Jewish audience that day on that Galilean hillside would have been listening to him with that mindset. Uh, that giving to the poor was an act of righteousness. Even today in modern Judaism, they still use this word, tzedakah, to refer to philanthropy and charitable giving. Uh, and if you go into a Jewish, Jewish synagogue or temple, you will find a tzedakah box there where people give for the benefit of the poor. Uh, now, I think it's important to understand that the Greek verb that is used here speaks of an attitude. It, it is a verb that speaks of an act 
There's no attitude without an act in this term. So this does not refer simply to longing to help the poor or a compassion for the poor or sympathy for the poor. Rather, it refers to the very act of helping them. This word is not referring to some weak sympathy which carnal selfishness feels but never does anything to help. It doesn't refer to some kind of false righteousness that merely salves one's conscience. And it doesn't mean that you have good intentions to give to the poor, but you never actually carried through with it. What he's talking about is an actual act of giving. Notice that Jesus says, so when you give to the poor, the assumption there is that you will do this. He doesn't say if you give to the poor. He says when you give to the poor. Giving to people in need is an assumption. How could we possibly say we're Christians and not do that? That's what John says in 1 John 3.17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, your claim to be a believer is suspect. It's questionable. James very pointedly points out, the, says the same thing in James 2, 14 to 17. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. In other words, if a fellow Christian, a fellow believer, is destitute and needs clothing or food, and all you say is, oh, that's too bad, brother. I'll be praying for you that the Lord will provide what you need. And you don't give them anything physically tangible to meet their needs. You really haven't done a thing for them. And your claim to faith is questionable. In fact, just a few verses later, James repeats what he says here in chapter 2, verse 26. Faith without works is dead. In other words, it isn't real. It's worthless. Your claim to be a believer is false. So that's why Jesus says, when you give to the poor. It's assumed that one with the heart of God dwelling within him is going to reach out to one in need because the heart of God is inclined to the poor and needy. Ephesians 2.4 says God is rich in mercy. And since God is rich in mercy, we who name the name of God should be merciful to others as well. If the Holy Spirit is truly living in, him, in me, I will be rich in mercy to those in need. Now, Jesus and the disciples carried around a money bag uh, and according, or a little box. And according to John 13, 29, the money in that box was used for two things. One, to supply for their own needs, and two, to give to the poor. And that's what God wants you to do with your money. Meet your own needs and then give to the poor to meet their needs. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were used to doing this. That had been a part of their heritage for a very long time. Uh, they always extended themselves to the needy. But the fact was, they had twisted and perverted the significance of giving to the poor. 
they took it to absurd extremes. For example, in the apocryphal book of Tobit, uh, in chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, it says, It is better to give alms than to lay up gold, for alms doth deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. So the Jews actually taught that they would purge away their sins by giving money to the needy. That's how far they'd gone. In another apocryphal book, uh, Sirach, it says in chapter 3, verse 30, As water will quench a flaming fire, so alms will make an atonement for sins. Interesting. The Talmud, which is a collection of the rabbinic teachings of Judaism, contains several statements such as, quote, almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings, end quote, is, and is equal to the whole law and will deliver from the condemnation of hell and will make one perfectly righteous, end quote. That's why many Jews believe that salvation was easier for the rich because they could buy their way into heaven by giving to the poor. By the way, because the Roman Catholic Church accepts the apocryphal books as being a part of the canon of Scripture, it has bought into this same idea. Uh, Pope Leo the Great once said, quote, By prayer we seek to appease God, by fasting we extinguish the lust of the flesh, and by alms we redeem our sins, end quote. And that doctrine hasn't changed since he said that in the 5th century A.D. Uh, just last year, uh, March 5th of 2020, the Catholic Herald magazine wrote an article during Lent titled How to Give Alms, in which it states, and I quote, The Catholic Church prescribes almsgiving during Lent since it can serve as an atonement for the sins of both the living and the dead, end quote. So the rabbis of Judaism made giving to the poor a saving element, and the Roman Catholic Church has done the same thing. Yes. When we were over in Lisbon, boy, that was made very clear that you saw people everywhere begging. Yeah. And it was made very clear that you're in trouble if you don't. Yeah, yeah. But not only did they see it as a, oh, was your hand up? Go ahead. What are your thoughts on sitting at a traffic light and you see the people with the signs and they want something? Uh, should we struggle with that? Should we give? Should we ignore them? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I've covered that in a previous lesson. I'm going to touch on it a little bit more. Um, let me see where I'm getting into that. Um, it may be next week. Uh, no, it'll probably it'll be next week. I'm going back to Abel next week to serve. Oh, you're going back to Abel next week to serve. <laughs> Um, I, I will. I, you know, I struggle with that. And sometimes yeah. I do. I handle something. So I, 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 um, I'm glad you struggle with that uh, because in working with them for many years, my my I'm well aware that probably 90% of them, no less than 90% of them, collect an SSI check. And they burn through it in the first two weeks of the month with uh, alcohol and drugs and cigarettes and then they are begging for money the rest of the week and uh, uh, so uh, I'm sure but I don't they, know those things. yeah yeah uh, I when I was doing my job there uh, working in prisoner transport I interacted with those guys regular daily and um, there were a handful that we would do whatever we could as deputies 
to assist them uh, and get them what they needed. And, uh, and we knew where the resources were that we could take them to. Uh, but we also found that the majority of them, the moment you said, well, here, let me take you to Safe Harbor or let me take you to the Catholic Charities Group or somewhere like that. No, I'm not interested. Uh, to the soup kitchen. Let me take you to the soup kitchen. No, not interested. So uh, that's, that's where, yeah, be careful. So not only then was their giving about atoning for sin, but they also made it a test for piosity. Uh, and they really turned it into a huge display. But Jesus says the only thing God cares about is your heart. Not what you did, but why you did it. Two people can do the same thing, give money to the poor. The difference is, why do they do it? This makes the difference. Well, I happen to be at a spot in my notes that makes a break. And so I'm going to take that break and uh, stop here and pick this up next week. Any other uh, comments or questions? Yes. They actually have professional organizers that take those people around and drop them on the street. I've seen them do it down because I have little properties down there in an area where this is prevalent. Mm -hmm. One day I saw this lady on the street she was pregnant and I thought, I actually drove around the block. I thought, well, I could give her something while I drove around the block. And she was, had left the corner and she was over in a vacant lot and she had a fanny pack on and she was taking money out of the fanny pack and giving it to somebody who happened to be driving a black Mercedes. So I know, and you see the signs and the signs are identical. So mm -hmm. they actually have a business. Doing I, that. I, rem I remember back in 1987, I was uh, attending the FBI National Academy and one weekend uh, I and three or four other guys went up to Baltimore to the uh, waterfront there. It's all real fancy little waterfront they have down there. And, and uh, we were headed to this one restaurant to uh, get some good crabs there on the waterfront. And uh, as we were walking down the sidewalk, there was a young man sitting there uh, with strumming a guitar. He had the case open and donations, people were putting donations into it, and he was wearing uh, sunshades uh, and, a cape and a little sign about helping the, the blind and you know needy homeless blind guy or whatever. And, uh, and there was a part of me that said, oh, I need to help this guy out. And one of my buddies was from Compton, California, police department. Well, if you know uh, anything about Compton, it's, the ghetto of California. And uh, he says, no, no, don't, don't do it. He says, take my word for it. He's not. Said, okay. So we walked by, we got about a half a block past and my buddy says, hey, look, there he goes. I turned around and he had got his guitar, put it away and he was running across the street. His sunglasses were off and he was literally running across the street towards uh, bus station or something like that to, to get a ride out of there. So not blind. Not blind at all. <laughs> so, 
yeah so so it was so it was uh yeah so there there's a lot of them out there that are scammers all right anything else well let's close with prayer and be dismissed father thank you for this day thank you for the opportunity to come together and now to go from here into the worship service and praise you and lord as we go pray that the things that we've heard today would impact our own hearts so that we are not hypocrites in our worship or our giving and that uh, we worship you from hearts that are pure and we give from hearts that are pure lord we pray that uh, we would support this church and its ministries and other fine ministries with our money not being selfish knowing that everything we have comes from you uh, but at the same time lord being prudent and wise and uh, not giving it away to organizations or individuals that are uh, deceitful thank you again for your word and this time together in christ's name amen, amen.